From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, IFAS, Histology and Manifestations, Part 2. It's also been described with, with other medications for, for benign prostatic hypertrophy or BPH, such as finasteride, and interestingly, some herbal extract uh, medications like saw palmetto. First this. Name a part of the eye on which surgery can produce near-instant improvement in a patient's life. Okay, name another. That's right. Corneal surgery by laser, by steel and gem keratome, by photochemical cross-linking is changing clinical practice. That's why this year's Cornea Day is so important. I had a chance to speak with David Glasser about Cornea Day 2011. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast for our conversation about this great event. Today, we hear part two of my conversation with Terry Kim about intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, IFAS. Terry, you describe in the paper an apoptotic effect of alpha-adrenergic receptor blockers on the smooth muscle of the prostate. Do you think that apoptosis is induced in the iris dilator muscle as well? You know, to be honest uh, with you, uh, I don't have a direct answer to that question. Um, We did, in our paper, describe uh, a potential additional mechanism uh, of action in that some of these uh, adrenergic receptor antagonists may suppress the growth of the prostate by, in fact, inducing apoptosis um, and by regulating cell growth and differentiation. Um, And studies have shown that the chronic use of other alpha-1 adrenergic receptor antagonists have led to an increase in apoptotic stromal muscle cells and severe stromal fibroblast degeneration. Now, I will tell you one thing, one aspect of our study that we actually didn't include in our publication was some of the um, transmission electron microscope studies that were done on human uh, iris uh, specimens. And this was uh, kind of a separate part of our study, Josh, where we actually wanted to take iris specimens from patients that did exhibit intraoperative floppy iris syndrome clinically in the operating room. In those patients, we wanted to take the iridectomy specimens to examine them under transmission electron microscopy to see if we saw anything different in terms of the anatomy. So kind of a taking it to another level. We, we knew we were doing the histopathologic studies with the autopsy specimens, but this is different in terms of taking patients uh, who actually had evidence of ISIS intraoperatively that we witnessed and then taking a piece of their iris to examine it under TEM and control, can compare it to control human, human iris specimens. And we only did this with uh, three patients. Um, it was a small study. Um, and it was, it was IRB approved, and we got patient consent for this. Uh, and basically, I will tell you just logistically, it, it is not an easy thing to do because when you take an iridectomy specimen, place it on filter paper, it automatically scrolls up, rolls up, and there's, there's probably, uh, and even though uh, we tried as much as we could to flatten out that specimen to resemble what it would look like uh, in vivo, um, it, it does scroll up and it's difficult to maintain that same gross anatomy. Uh, also, there's probably a lot of uh, artifact in terms of processing these specimens. But the reason I bring this up, Josh, is you, you mentioned uh, is there potentially apoptosis that's induced in the iris dilator muscle? Well, w- one of the things that we did see 
in uh, the transmission electron microscopic uh, examinations in patients who were on tamsulosin was that there was a lack of identifiable myofibrils and there was an increased vacuolization of these muscle fibers that was evident um, in these specimens uh, from the tamsulosin subjects. And we didn't really see this in the control subjects that were not on tamsulosin. So I'm not telling you that this is a definitive finding, which is why it wasn't included in our paper, but it may point to another mechanism whereby um, apoptosis may, may be involved or some other mechanism may be involved that ultimately alters the ultrastructure of the iris, thereby contributing to some of the findings we see with IFIS. Although any alpha-adrenergic receptor blocker can produce IFIS, tamsulosin is particularly associated with this condition. Why do you think this is? Well, you know, it's um, interesting. Since IFIS was first reported with the use of tamsulosin, and in fact, in, in Dr. Chang Campbell's uh, seminal paper in 2005, uh, they in fact looked at not only patients who are on tamsulosin, but other uh, alpha-1 adrenergic uh, medications, but they found a higher propensity uh, of those that were taking tamsulosin uh, per se, which is again a selected alpha-1A blocker, that exhibited uh, clinically IFIS. There have been, since that report, many reports of IFIS occurring in patients taking non-selective alpha-1 antagonists, um, indicating that this syndrome is uh, potentially associated with an entire class of drugs. It's also been uh, described with, with other medications for, for benign prostatic hypertrophy or BPH, such as finasteride, and interestingly, some herbal extract uh, medications like saw palmetto. And it's also been described uh, in some antidepressant medications like meansarin, which is an antidepressant that has serotonin, histamine, and alpha-1 and alpha-2 adrenergic receptor blocking effects, as well as beta blockers like labetalol, which is an antihypertensive medication that acts primarily as a beta blocker but has a secondary effect as an alpha-1 blocker as well. So we've seen... IFAS described with a number of different drugs and different class of drugs. Now, why uh, is there particularly a high association of IFAS with tamsulosin? Um, and there have been some studies that may provide some insight. As I alluded to earlier, some animal in vitro data has shown that tamsulosin probably has a much greater affinity for the alpha-1A receptor subtype, which is presumably, again, this is presumed because there have been really uh, no real characterization of the alpha-1 receptor subtypes in the human iris smooth uh, dilator muscle. This has all been extrapolated from, from rabbit data, and we, we, we presume that, that rabbit and humans have similar uh, iris alpha-1 adrenal receptors, um, and, and this is a presumption, however. Uh, but we think uh, that there's a greater affinity, and studies have shown a great affinity for tamsulosin for that receptor, so, so that may be one reason. Uh, there also have been some studies pharmacologic studies. Uh, in fact, uh, one that David Chang was involved with, uh, Pelea, that was also published in JCRS in 2008, that looked at um, and wanted to compare the pharmacologic properties of tamsulosin and another alpha-1 adrenergic antagonist, uh, alfuzazin, in the prostate and iris smooth muscle from pigmented rabbits. And basically, uh, both drugs were found to be 30 times less potent in the iris dilator muscle compared to the prosthetic smooth muscle. 
But in the iris, it appeared that Pam Solson acted as a competitive antagonist at various concentrations and lower concentrations uh, compared to those of, of the alfuzacin. So basically, tansalosin was more effective than the other drug at blocking the adrenergic contracture of that smooth dilator muscle in these pigmented rabbits. Um, as I said, they were both less potent in the iris than in the prostate. Uh, and this suggests that there may be an additional iris receptor that could be involved. Now, if this is valid in, in the human model, uh, these results suggest that the concentrations that we get with tamsulosin in the, in the serum of the plasma are able to block the iris smooth muscle contraction, uh, whereas the concentrations that we reach with alfuzolin or alfuzacin are not. And this may be the reason why we see a higher frequency of IFIS in patients treated with tamsulosin compared to other drugs. Uh, but what's what's interesting is this idea of an additional receptor that may be involved, and we don't know what that receptor is. And this is hypothesized. Excuse me, it's hypothesized that there is an additional receptor that plays a role here. This may explain the differences of of why we see uh, that special or more enhanced effect with pantyhosin compared to other drugs. Now, Terry, while we're on the subject of receptor subtypes, let me ask, is the alpha-adrenergic receptor subtype in the prostate different from that of the iris dilator muscle? And, And is there any hope, then, of developing a drug that is more specific to the prostate? Well, I think that's a great question, and you, you obviously have great insight into to potential therapy to, to prevent this from occurring. And, and really, at this time, based on the information that we have, I don't think we really know. Uh, in fact, the, you know, in, in looking at the literature for just normal ultrastructure of the human dilator uh, smooth muscle in normal humans, I, I had a tough time actually finding uh, transmission and scanning electron micrographic information on just normal anatomy. Uh, and then, I, as I told you, the characterization of these receptor subtypes in the human uh, iris smooth muscle has really not been established. So uh, right now, uh, a lot of this is hypothesis. Um, and uh, I think that if we can really characterize and find this uh, additional hypothetical receptor, then, yeah, I do think there's a potential hope of developing uh, a more specific drug uh, that won't have the, the, the side effects um, of uh, producing IFIS. So, so that's our hope. That's our goal. But we still have work to do in that area. Terry, to bring this back to something more immediately clinical, given the real histological changes that you observed in the areas of patients taking tamsulosin, is there any rationale for asking patients to discontinue tamsulosin prior to cataract surgery? Well, you know, I think this is, uh, I mean, I think it's a controversial topic. Um, as we discussed earlier, uh, we've certainly seen uh, the effects of tamsulosin in terms of uh, patients exhibiting IFIS even after stopping therapy for for more than a year. Um, One of the benefits potentially of stopping uh, the medication, there have been some prospective uh, studies that have shown by stopping it uh, in some patients, you you may get a larger pupil at the beginning of your case. Um, But these studies have pretty much shown that uh, it still does not uh, result in any statistically significant improvement in the severity of IFIS that you may get. Um, so 
you know, basically, I think at this point, stopping or discontinuing, uh, discontinuing tantalosin preoperatively is, is probably unpredictable in terms of its value. And, and it definitely doesn't reliable, reliably predict whether or not you're going to have IFIS and, and how severe you, uh, of, a, of an IFIS uh, case you're going to have intraoperatively. Uh, you know, the ASCRS Cataract uh, Clinical Committee, which David Chang and others are, are on, um, performed a survey in 2008. And if you look at the ASCRS uh, numbers, 11% of the surgeons said that they routinely stopped tantalosin, uh before cataract surgery, while 64% uh, said they never do. Uh, now, this is 2008. Uh, we may see may have seen a trend in, 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 in changing this because certainly our awareness of this uh, has increased uh, in the past. And I really commend David Chang and, and the ASCRIS uh, Corny Committee and, and ASCRIS and Academy and, and um, also the American Urological Association. In terms of heightening uh, this awareness, um, you know, since uh, this first report and uh, observation of IFIS uh, in the literature, um, ASCRIS uh, issued a global advisory alert uh, in January 2005, and uh, following additional multiple physician reports uh, later that year, um, uh, the United States FDA instituted a labeling warning about alpha-1 antagonists and cataract surgery in that, in that same year. Uh, then the following year in 2006, ASCRS, uh, the American Academy of Ophthalmology and the American Neurological Association uh, issued a joint press release highlighting uh, the importance uh, of these patients uh, taking systemic alpha-1 antagonists to inform their ophthalmologists before their cataract surgery. And, and I think if you've ever seen these uh, Formax commercials, you'll see that uh, it's now this message is, it has been incorporated into the direct uh, to consumer uh, commercials and advertisements we've seen uh, for Formax. So I think what's important here is that heightened awareness um, because by knowing a patient is by knowing a patient that is either on Formax uh, or an, another alpha one um, antagonist or perhaps a history of using Flomax or some of these other medications, it can help alert the physician of, an, of anticipating IFIS intraoperatively, and, and thereby the, the, the surgeon can perhaps employ some preventative measures uh, at reducing the severity of these findings intraoperatively, such as perhaps what's been described as starting atropine or perhaps an intracamel administration of uh, epinephrine um, perhaps adjusting the phacal emulsification settings, uh, such as using low flow settings, uh, low aspiration flow rates, low, low vacuum settings, low irrigation settings for these patients, and directing flow away from the iris of the pupil to prevent the iris from, from constricting uh, during these cases, using very uh, maximally uh, retentive and cohesive viscoelastics uh, like uh, Helon-5, uh, and also getting ready... Um, to potentially uh, employ some other surgical devices that have been shown to be helpful and effective in dealing uh, with IFIS. And some of these devices include um, pupil 
expansion devices like the Malugan ring, which I personally found to be very helpful uh, in these IFAS cases. Uh, some people still use uh, the old Iris retractors and, uh, in these cases as well. There have been, there have been uh, other pupillary rings that have been described. But again, by whether it's by pharmacologic uh, means, uh, viscoelastic devices, uh, mechanical uh, pupil expansion devices, or potentially a combination of these strategies, uh, by knowing that a patient may have an increased risk for exhibiting IFAS, the surgeon can be prepared to deal with this intraoperatively. And studies have shown um, that small pupils certainly increase the risk for complications with cataract surgery, and specifically with IFAS. This has been clearly reported in the literature. So by the surgeon being aware of this and by anticipating it, he or she can employ these devices and strategies to help reduce the complications with cataract surgery. And that's ultimately our goal. We want to maximize and improve our uh, our uh, outcomes with these patients because cataract surgery is going to become a more common procedure uh, as we see, see the baby, baby boomer generation mature. And as I've already told you, tamsulosin uh, use uh, is the most commonly uh, prescribed medication for BPH. And Look at just the incidence of BPH, which is approximately 50% in men over the year, uh, over 50 years of age, and 90% incidence in men older than 85 uh, years of age. So, if you look at the statistics of this aging population, uh, folks who have BPH and are going to get some type of alpha-1 uh, antagonist, uh, I think that it uh, it basically begs the cataract surgeons to be prepared and, and, and have this heightened awareness uh, in order to be prepared to deal with it. Terry, clearly the most valuable um, take-home message here is to have the surgeon warned of the, the potential for having these sorts of findings during, during surgery and, 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 and to be ready uh, to deal with them should they happen. But I want to kind of hold your, your feet to the fire with the, the previous question that I asked. So uh, what what I'm hearing is that for your own patients, someone comes into your own practice on Tamsulosin, uh, who you would otherwise schedule for cataract surgery relatively soon, you are going to ask them to stop Tamsulosin, but you're not going to institute any sort of washout period and, and delay surgery, uh, to delay scheduling surgery um, because the, the, the patient has been on it. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting when you, when you say that, you know, if you look at the original paper um, that was published in 2005, one of the uh, surgeons there, um, Dr. John Campbell, actually uh, saw that despite, you know, performing a washout period of three to seven days, uh, it didn't prevent floppy iris from occurring um, in a small group of patients that he looked at. Now, I will tell you that uh, when I see patients um, who are taking Fulmax, one of the one of the things I really look at is how well they dilate preoperatively. And although this finding is not officially uh, or classically part of the triad uh, of findings in IFIS, uh, they did observe that in their original series of patients. Uh, and I think there is a high correlation of patients who do not dilate well preoperatively are probably going to exhibit um, IFIS more pronounced or more severely intraoperatively. And so that's one of the things I do really look for, uh, pure, uh, poor pupillary dilation prior to the case. And if I do see that, uh, that is going to prompt me to, for instance, use atropine 1% twice a day a week before cataract surgery. 
Uh, and it may also prompt me to use, um, you know, Joel Sugar, S-H-U-G-A-R, was the first to report uh, the use of an epinephrine-based uh, uh, intracameral solution intraoperatively uh, to help reduce the severity of IFIS intraoperatively. So I think by observing uh, the pupil prior to surgery uh, could really help prepare you. And that's what probably really sways me to institute some of these things prior to surgery. As to the you know point of, of stopping cancelous, in my experience, it has not made a difference. One of the goals of this study, you know, and, and, and I always kind of go back to how, how these kind of things uh, happen. And, and IFAS, uh, you know, has certainly been a syndrome that, that we've, um, um, in ophthalmology as a field, um, become aware of thanks, thanks to the work of David Chang and, and the Ashworth uh, Cataract Corny Committee, and that awareness has, has really increased. Uh, but what we were really trying to do is ask the question, why does this happen? Um, and I feel fortunate um, with the resources uh, at Duke and the collaborative help of my colleagues that we were able to to potentially find, uh, you know, or provide more insight into the answer to that question. It may not be the full answer, but it certainly provides some information that is fairly easily uh, transferable in terms of the idea of a thinner iris translating into uh, this idea of uh, disuse atrophy from chronic receptor blade, uh, blockade uh, from tantalus and causing this. So that, that to me is exciting. Um, I think there's a lot of unknowns here that um, hopefully future uh, investigations uh, will uh, reveal. Terry, thank you very, very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to do this. Terry Kim is Professor of Ophthalmology and specialist in cornea and refractive surgery at the Duke University Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. His paper, The Effect of Alpha-1 Adrenergic Receptor Antagonist Tamsulosin, Flomax, on Iris Dilator Smooth Muscle Anatomy, appears in the May 2010 issue of Ophthalmology. I had a chance to speak with David Glasser about Cornea Day 2011. David, can I have you give me an overview of what Cornea Day is? Well, Cornea Day is a one-day meeting uh, just before the ASCRS meeting. Uh, we have this annually, and it's targeted to uh, both anterior segment surgeons with an interest in cornea and also to cornea subspecialists who are doing some of the more advanced cornea work. This year, uh, Cornea Day is going to be divided into, into sections that uh, will hopefully have something of interest for both of those groups. So we'll be discussing corneal issues in cataract and refractive surgery. There will be a session on infectious and inflammatory disease, a section on innovations in medical and surgical cornea, and then a section on corneal transplantation, which is targeted a little bit more to the cornea subspecialists. My subspecialty training is in cornea, but my practice is general. I'm particularly interested in the corneal issues in cataract and refractive surgery. Can you flesh that out a little bit for me? Sure. This is something that I think will appeal to the uh, to the cataract surgeon who's interested in some of the new technology that's that's coming down the pike and um, dealing with some of the uh, patients now who you know really are expecting you know refractive outcomes from cataract surgery. There'll be, a, I think, a very valuable panel presentation 
uh, with uh, cases presented to the panel, uh, asking them how they would manage uh, enhancements following cataract and refractive surgery, uh, how they manage astigmatism, uh, and cataract surgery following LASIK. So this is more than just the how do you calculate the IOL power. Um, some of it will have to do with, you know, how do you decide uh, what type of IOL is, is best, uh, how do you select patients for premium lenses versus those patients who may not be good candidates. And, you know, as you know, there are a variety of ways to uh, tackle astigmatism, including some very exciting new um, technology like the femtosecond laser. So in addition, uh, that section will be discussing femtosecond applications for making astigmatic incisions, astigmatic keratotomies, limbal relaxing incisions. Uh, and then we'll also have another section on new technology where the uh, femtosecond laser technology for um, cataract surgery for making the capsulorexis and for doing lens softening will be discussed, and also femtosecond applications for keratoplasty for both lamellar anterior and posterior or endothelial keratoplasty and also penetrating keratoplasty. That sounds great, David. Yeah, I think it'll be a very exciting. I think it'll be a very exciting uh, uh, session. One of the subjects that I'm interested in is collagen cross-linking. Is is this something that's going to be talked about at the meeting? Yes, uh, we will. We will have uh, some uh, discussion of collagen cross-linking. You know, it should be uh, in the uh, section on surgical innovations. There are really two main applications that people think of for co collagen cross-linking. One is uh, treatment of keratoconus, and the other is treatment of ectasia after um, after prior refractive surgery. And th these are both, you know, essentially uh, stiffening the cornea to uh, reduce uh, progression of ectasia. But there have been some other interesting applications for cross-linking, which are a little bit more out there, uh, trying to, uh, you know, reduce uh, corneal uh, melting or thinning and active inflammatory disease. And um, it'll be interesting to see if the uh, speakers have anything to say on that. This is uh, something that, you know, for the first time, we're thinking that we may have a way to arrest the disease in uh, cone patients if we catch them early. And a lot of the uh, early data is fairly promising. A lot of this has been done in Europe. Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, these folks uh, do develop a fair amount of stability, even though we don't get a whole lot of uh, uh, reduction in steepness, uh, they do seem to stop progressing, at least uh, in the uh, short to medium term. Some of the most challenging patients, uh, mundane but very challenging patients in the practice of a generalist are those patients with dry eye. I assume that this is a, a big topic that's going to be covered during cornea day. You know, we should have a, a pretty exciting talk on dry eye. Um, if uh, one can consider dry eye exciting, that's often the, uh, the bane of uh, some of our existence to try to uh, deal with this chronic disease that we, we really oftentimes just can't get our hands around and can't cure. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to bring forward some things that are beyond the typical uh, different tier preparations and plugs and omega-3s and environmental controls uh, to go beyond that to uh, perhaps some tier assays and diagnostic uh, uh, aids that can uh, help us tailor therapy, as well as some of the, the um, 
treatments that are less familiar to the ophthalmologist, such as uh, androgen therapy and secretagogues. David, cornea has always been a very high-tech field, and that, that's borne out now with the technologies that we have to image the, the cornea and some of the new approaches to corneal surgery. Can you talk about some of the things that are going to be brought up during uh, this year's Cornea Day? Well, one of the uh, topics in the uh, new technology section is going to be looking at the various new anterior segment imaging modalities. And, you know, we've just had a slew of new things that have, have become available over the last five or ten years. OCT, ultrasound biomicroscopy, Scheimflug imaging, and confocal microscopy. And they each have their place. Some of them may be very useful in managing the uh, cataract patient who is post-refractive surgery. Uh, others can be very useful in managing the post-lamellar keratoplasty patient. Uh, and in managing the patient who may be a candidate for um, phacic uh, intraocular lenses. Uh, and there's a lot of overlap between what some of these uh, machines can do. So we're going to try to have a little comparison of uh, those four in particular uh, so that the clinician you know, can really see what the utility in, in their own practice may be. These are not cheap instruments, and reimbursement is not exactly fantastic for uh, for using them. Uh, so I think we need to think carefully about um, how they'll fit into our practice, and we hope to be able to uh, give a little guidance along those lines. David Glasser, thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Kim or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.